This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Diana Fosha. Diana is the developer of AEDP, Accelerated Experiential Dynamic Psychotherapy, a healing-based, transformation-oriented model of psychotherapy. She's also the founder and director of the AEDP Institute. Based in New York City, Diana is on the faculty of the Departments of Psychiatry and Psychology at NYU and St. Luke's Roosevelt Medical Centers. With Sounds True, Diana Fosha is one of the featured presenters in Sounds True's free online training summit called Psychotherapy 2.0 that will be taking place September 7th through the 13th with two free broadcasts each day. Presenters in the series include Bessel Vanderkoek, Richard Schwartz, Stephen Hayes, Jack Cornfield, and Diana Fosha, who will be leading an online training on how to be a transformational therapist. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Diana and I spoke about the three pillars of AEDP and its distinctive features as a psychotherapeutic approach. We also talked about a central motto of AEDP, stay with it and stay with me, and how the work of AEDP helps clients, quote-unquote, undo aloneness. Finally, we talked about the role of the transformational therapist in our world today. Here's my conversation with Diana Fosha. Diana, to begin with, I would love it if you would be willing to share with our listeners a bit about your background and also the origin story, if you will, of AEDP. Sure, it would um, it would be my pleasure to to do so. Um, in turn, in terms of my background, professional background. Um, starts with a psychoanalytic story in that my initial training was psychodynamic. My clinical psychology graduate program, my doctoral program, was a program in with a very, very strong psychoanalytic orientation, which even though um, I've gone away from that, in my current work, I think served as a very, very strong foundation. I think of it as uh, my study in the classics that prepared me for everything ahead. Um, and from the psychodynamic, psychoanalytic initial training, um, the journey went to short-term dynamic psychotherapy, and in a way, the the, 
the origin of AEDP starts there in the attempt to simultaneously preserve something about the intensity of the transformation, transformational phenomena that I encountered in that work, specifically in the work of Davenlu, but with a very, very different ethos in terms of the nature of the therapeutic relationship that helps those phenomena. Um, so that that's, in a nutshell, maybe overly succinctly, but that's the, the, uh, the origin of it. Why did you feel a need to develop a new therapeutic approach? I mean, that's a big, bold move to make. Yes, I mean, I think that... Um, I didn't set out um, to develop a brand-new therapeutic approach. Um, In a way, I set out or it became very, very important to me to do, to fill in the gap, what I felt were the gaps um, that I was experiencing and the models that I was working with or in the experiences that I was having. Um, and they were several fold, if that word exists. Uh, you know, and I think the first is what I started to talk about that there was a power, um, a transformational power in the kind of phenomena that were yielded by the intensive short term dynamic psychotherapeutic work, Davenlu's work, that were very powerful and drew me to that training to begin with, and that seemed extraordinarily important, and that has remained a value that I've maintained over the years. But um, in terms of that approach, the nature of the confrontational relationship between therapist and patient um, didn't sit well with me, um, and in my observation didn't sit well with many therapists and also many patients, so it became important, A, to be able to see if it was possible to create a work that gave rise to the same kind of powerful powerful phenomena, but in the context of a relationship that was much more about being with rather than doing combat. So I think that was one thing that was profoundly important to me. The second thing that was very, very important to me was to have a coherent explanation for the phenomena that um, I was observing and seeking to evoke. And the theory within that tradition was wholly inadequate, completely inadequate to the transformational experiences that actually the, the work was evoking. So those were, I think, two just very, very important um, impetuses or impeti um, for the development of my work. And then really what started to happen was that out of trying to theoretically account or to have a framework that did justice, to those phenomena and my immersion in a whole literature that had to do with change processes and um, in the current language of the day, which was in the language of the 90s when I was developing this, about positive neuroplasticity, 
really what started to develop was a whole model. And there was just something about, um, you know, writing and trying to put it together coherently and then based on what I was finding being um, in my office with my patients, paying attention to those phenomena, seeking to sort of the the kind of dialectical process between the clinical work and the attempt to explain it led to this kind of spiraling process that kept unfolding and developing. And sort of before long, I had something of a model that used a very different explanatory framework than either psychoanalytic um psychodynamic thinking or the short-term dynamic psychotherapy and in that was really the birth of ADP. So for someone who's first hearing about AEDP right now and they're trying to dial in, okay, help me understand what is this therapeutic approach and how is it different from other approaches? Can you give them a kind of nutshell picture, if you will? Um, I'd love to try. Um, I think it has, right off the bat, there's three things that come to my mind that I would want to identify. Um, I think the first is a fundamentally healing orientation. Um, meaning being very oriented to phenomena of healing and growth and transformation within the individual rather than being focused on the psychopathology and very much using um, that um, orientation or that detection of health and resilience and healing, even in if in glimmer form, um, to orient and focus one's clinical activities. So that's the first thing that I would say. The second has to do with the nature of the therapeutic relationship and the degree to which it is modeled on a healthy caregiver-child relationship Um, that gives rise to secure attachment, Um, and the implications being that there's something about the stance of the therapist that seeks to um, inspire, co-create conditions for safety by being actively engaged, welcoming, affirming. In other words, that not only are we going way beyond um, the stance of neutrality, Right. Actually, the therapist's affective involvement is very important. So we're going beyond neutrality, but we're also going beyond presence and empathy of so many of approaches that are resonant with AEDP uh, by being there's a level of engagement and use of the self of the therapist in the co-creation of the relationship and working with a patient's experience of the therapeutic relationship that I think is rather specific and distinct. Um, 
about ADP. And the third, and I will try to be succinct here um, as we sort of launch into it to begin with, but the third has to do with the centrality of what we call metaprocessing and working with transformational experience. And that has been just a profound aspect of the work that's based on a discovery. And the discovery had to do with the fact that if you, if we, if one works or if therapists work and focus on not just seeking to facilitate transformation, but on the experience of change for the better as an experience, so focusing on transformational experience, experientially, that in and of itself evokes a transformational process. I don't know if I'm clear about that, but um, it is one of the most distinctive aspects um, of ADP and I think one of the aspects that contributes enormously to the transformational power that we seek to engender on a pretty systematic basis. Diana, let's go into each of these three points because I think they need a little bit of unpacking to make sure that our listeners are fully tracking with you. So the first point you made, that AEDP focuses right from the beginning on this power that we have for healing and growth and transformation and doesn't focus in the same way as maybe some other psychotherapeutic approaches on psychopathology. So someone comes to you, does that mean that you're not trying to diagnose, well, this is the problem, blah, 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 but you're focusing on something else instead, you know, signs of health? Help me understand it. Yes, I think that, you know, you bring, you know, several things into it. But I think, um, you know, the the seeking to discover resources and resilience and capacity is an incredibly important goal of the initial consultation. It's also something that we pay attention to throughout the therapy. But rather than being hyper-focused on what is the diagnosis or getting the lay of the land with respect to the psychopathology, that's of course important and that's going to emerge in the course of the interaction and the discussion for after all that's what the that's why the the person is there. But somehow the focus on finding those glimmers of health and connection and resilience and then reflecting them back to the patient and working with them experientially is one of the things that we privileged. And one of the sort of gorgeous um, consequences of this focus is that we take the patient by surprise, so to speak, or the patient's unconscious by surprise, so to speak, that there's something about somebody's... um, getting themselves um, ready to 
do what's necessary to be in a psychotherapeutic encounter when they decide to do that, and in a way almost like girding their loins about, you know, being ready to expose to a stranger something that's so vulnerable or shameful or some place where they've gotten stuck um, or something that's really not working. And just being able to tolerate that in the greater service of hoping to relieve their suffering. And actually what comes back to them is not you have failed, the reflection of the failure or the disturbance or of how much difficulty they're having, but what comes back in these moments of focusing on the healing is I am so struck by your courage or I am so struck by your capacity to be open and honest and so direct with me. And there's something about that sense of being seen that shifts something about the nature of the relationship and then shifts something in the nature of the patient's experience so that when we actually go to the muck, when we go to the symptoms, when we go to the psychopathology, it's already from a somewhat through a different lens for with different set of resources on board. I can imagine a difficult or cynical client, patient, who, Mm -hmm. you know, the therapist says something like, you know, God, I see this glimmer of courage in you. And they're just kind of like, you know, come on, (laughs) you're pulling some kind of, you're pulling some kind of thing on me. You're, you know, let's accentuate the positive here. You know, I mean, I feel terrible. That's why I came to see you. Right. You say this to all your patients, or is that your stick? Yeah, exactly. You know, right. I, I read a little bit about AEDP before I came in, and now this is what you're saying to me. Come on. Right. So, which is, you know, very important because, um, you know, we make the intervention, or I would make such an intervention, you know, in the hope of genuinely reflecting and mirroring and helping the person really take in something important about themselves, but it's actually a powerful intervention that's really, that's powerful in evoking either a deepening or a bringing up of something like resistance or bringing up of defenses, much as, um, you know, as you're saying. So if somebody were to respond, and people certainly either drop down or have some kind of experience of being seen or feeling um, uh, understood, or it evokes some sense of threat or disbelief, right, and come back with something like what you said, that I think that, again, that my response um, could vary, but one of it would be to say, I'm glad you're being direct with me. I'm glad you're tell- telling me what you're thinking. But I'm wondering, what's your experience of me as you're sitting here with me? Tell me more, right? I might shift it to their experience. You know, what's their sense of me with respect to them? That might be one intervention that I would make. I would validate the defense. I would not try to argue you know, with their perception, but we would try to sort of like unfold it from there. Now, Diana, I'm curious, how did you come to this principle, if you will, that 
focusing on these, you called them glimmers, is so healing and important in the psychotherapeutic process. How did you come to that? I think in part it was empirical. Um, I think, you know, one of the things that um, is important to mention here is that the work is videotaped, and I videotape all my sessions, I teach from videotape, I supervise from my supervisees videotape of their sessions, and when I was developing this work, I really spent a lot of time looking at videotapes, tracking what was happening moment by moment, and seeking to pay attention to what works and do more of that and what doesn't seem to work, or at least in my hands, and do less of that. And there was just this observation that sometimes, you know, picking up on these small glimmers had a power that was disproportionate to their seeming size to begin with. And so that, in a way, it was just noticing that there was something about shifting figure and ground that shifted something in the patient. So then I became sort of interested in this phenomenon and started to do it sort of more systematically. And the more I did it, the more it seemed to yield, um, you know, a very powerful, very interesting sort of set of phenomena that seemed to move it in the right direction. This idea of identifying these glimmers of strength in someone, even someone who might be complaining or in a difficult situation. Mm. Part, part of me wonders, have you just tried doing this not in the therapeutic context, but just with people in everyday life and what kind of results you get? Yeah, I mean, actually, I'm coming, today I'm coming from teaching a course. Um, and that was sort of like some of the reflections of the participants were that this is not just a model of, you know, a specific way, a set of interventions of doing therapy, but in a way it's an orientation towards life uh, or towards engagement. And I have to say that in a way um, I think I have tried to imitate myself as a therapist in my life outside of therapy sessions. Yeah. Um, And... You know, I think that it's the process, and again, you know, different things with different people, but there's something about um, be leading with a validation or leading with appreciation or, you know, in the context of, a, you know, desperate situation that has, you know, I'll give you an example. I... Um, I have a very dear friend who is currently in just a very, very, very difficult um, life situation, very burdened by the care of an elderly mother alone, recently divorced, endless number of things. And this is also a person who's relatively depressive, depressed by nature. And there's something about listening to what she's dealing with day by day that evokes hopelessness in her 
a sense of hopelessness and futility and exhaustion. And there's a way in which it also evokes that in me. And yet when I said something to her about, you know, what a devoted daughter she is, that I am in awe, which is also true, at her commitment to being able to do her best to provide a certain quality of life for her ailing mother, a mother who has not been very good to her, incidentally. There was just something about that affirmation that for the first time like brought a lightning to my friend, one that I hadn't observed for weeks and weeks and weeks. And in turn, that made me feel a little bit lighter than quite so burdened. It's just one example. A real mm-hmm. example. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and this is somebody who can be quite cynical. So, you know, it wasn't clear to me that she wasn't going to respond in some way like, you know, your hypothetical patient and just saying, oh, yeah, right, and a lot of good it's doing me. But it didn't. You know, and in part it didn't because what I said um, was truthful. Um, She does have, you know, an extraordinary devotion and commitment. So once I said it, um, it was said with sincerity. It wasn't just a line or an attempt to sort of manipulate the situation in a better direction. So, mm-hmm. Just one more question about this first feature of AEDP before we move on, which is I know in your work you talk about becoming what you call a transformance detective. Yes. This is part of what an AEDP therapist can do in this word transformance which yeah. you use in contrast to the idea of resistance and finding right. all those places in resistance. So how do you work as a detective? What are you looking for to find the glimmer? Okay, I see it. Mm-hmm. I think there's, you know, like so much experiential work in ADB2 There's a way of being present and a way of listening and a way of tracking that really tracks the subtle fluctuations that are sort of moment to moment, you know, that is not just listening for the grand narrative themes or looking for clusters or symptoms or even necessarily, you know, clusters of qualities uh, of resilience and so on and so forth. But it's really tracking the interaction between patient and therapist and tracking the patient's experience of my own experience in this kind of subtle moment-to-moment way in which we're always responding to each other. Um, And there's something about tracking these fluctuations and having learned something about the 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 what defines the glimmers of transformance, which is that they're associated and variably associated with a sense of vitality or a sense of energy, 
and they're positive in the sense that if you stop the action, you know, let's say, for instance, when you ask me about being a transformance detective now, you're not seeing my face because we're talking on the telephone, but I don't know if you heard a smile in my voice. Um, but whether you heard it or not, I had a smile when you said that. I heard it right now. I just heard the smile, the little laugh right. and smile. So I just heard it. Right. Okay. So, you know, if upon hearing something like that, if you mirror it back and say, oh, so we're talking, but I hear the smile or I see the smile, what's that like? What does that feel like? Then I would be able to say, well, it sort of feels, it feels good. There's something exciting or slightly pleasurable in our conversation, right? And, you know, it feels right or good to me. So it's not just in this particular case because it evoked a smile, which is a decidedly and obviously positive experience. But, for instance, sometimes there can be just a deepening or a relaxation or a big exhale or a settling into a feeling, which can even be a potentially, a possibly painful feeling, but at the same time, it feels right. So that there's something about the subjective experience of the individual who's experiencing these little glimmers, and sometimes they're little and sometimes they're bigger, that they'll tell you invariably that it feels good or it feels right or it feels true. And these markers, these somatic markers, you know, they manifest in a brightening of the eyes or in a relaxation of the shoulders or in... Uh, deepening of the breathing or, you know, any number of things, if you actually draw the person's attention to them, what they'll tell you is some version of it feels good or it feels right or it feels true. Hmm. I think that that's really sort of um, what we're bringing in when that's what I'm seeking to detect when I'm being a transformance detective, as well as the bigger qualities like courage uh, in somebody who's much more aware of being terrified or, you know, devotion, an unusually inspiring devotion in my friend who was mainly aware of the burdens. Mm-hmm. Uh, on her, right? That's a big quality. It's not just a little glimmer, but sort of also just being on the lookout for what are those experiences. Hmm. Yeah. The other, big or small. Yeah, you're activating the person's vitality, courage, heartful devotion, whatever the quality is that you are picking up the little glimmer of. And then by seeing it and saying it back to them, it's like the glimmer becomes more like a fire or something because of your activation of it. That That's makes sense right. to me. That makes sense to I me. I appreciate that. Right. Okay, moving on to the second point you made about the unique 
emphasis in AEDP. You talked about the nature of the therapeutic relationship and that the therapist is very actively engaged beyond presence right. and empathy. And you said something else I thought was really interesting. Like a parent with a child in order to create secure attachment for the client. And I thought, right. really, do I really want my therapist to be like my pretend parent? Really? Is that what I want? I mean, or do I want to go and see a therapist who I know is a adult in their own process, going through their own thing, just like me? So I'm curious about that. No, I appreciate, actually, the opportunity to clarify that, because I didn't necessarily mean, you know, to... But in some ways I do, and in some ways I don't. So let, let me um, clarify the first sense in which... I meant, you know, that the stance of the ADP therapist is very much inspired by learning what do parents of securely attached children do or what do they, what kind of relationship do they engender. And learning something about those qualities, I didn't necessarily mean, you know, acting parental, but the capacity to listen, the capacity to respond to um, difficult feelings with the capacity to hold it rather than trying to shut it down or not being able to accept it, you know, an ability to engage, the spontaneous expression of delight, you know, in the child. It doesn't, it's not an parental relationship, like I'm going to treat you like a child and I'm going to, you know, do the 10 million things that parents need to do with little children. But, like, what are maybe the best way to say it, what are the affective qualities of the parent who um, co-engenders secure attachment and let's try to to bring those in the context of a relationship between two adults. Um, you know, though the other piece that you said is, you know, the other piece that I realized that I will own, because I started to say, well, it's not an asymmetrical relationship. And there are aspects of the, therape of the therapist stance or of the therapeutic relationship, which I think are deeply symmetric in that here are two adults engaged in a process. They have different roles, but um, we're two adults. But there are aspects of the process where I think there is a, an asymmetry and that there's something about the therapist being able to take the lead and set a tone and help when the person in the therapy is at a loss or stuck or feeling helpless or feeling in some way unable to do something just through their own resources, the lending of a hand, and I don't mean at all, um, parentified or parenta, you know, the opposite, or infantilizing, you know, the adult patient, but a quality of taking the lead 
and saying, okay, we have respective roles here, and you're coming to me to consult me because I have something to offer you. If we're meeting outside of my office, you might very well, I may be looking to you to do that, but in this context, when you're in need, I will take the lead and help us navigate this process and direct us here or there as long as that seems to be necessary. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive three free gifts just for visiting us. Go to soundstrue.com backslash free. That's soundstrue.com backslash free. And now back to Insights at the Edge. And what do you think are the keys from your experience with AEDP and the AEDP approach to creating this sense of safety and vulnerability? And yes, I really feel I can fully share with you who I am. I think just a big... um, aspect of this has something to do with acceptance, um, which counters shame, so that pretty much no matter what the patient puts forth, including something, you know, cynical or skeptical or challenging, like in the example that that you gave, um, but whether it's that or whether it's a feeling of helplessness or a sense of stuckness or, you know, that whatever it is that one, that I as a therapist am going to meet it with acceptance and some fundamental sense that even though it may feel very bad or it may in fact be somewhat inadequate, to the person's life circumstances and thus their difficulties, that it really reflects that some reflection of best efforts. You know, it's almost like the uh, what you learn when you're doing improvisational theater, that, you know, no matter what your improvisational partner says, you never say no but, you always say yes and no matter how ridiculous and no matter. There's something about this yes and that's, I think, also fundamental to the attitude of or the the stance of the therapist. And over time, or actually, you know, the patient starts to get the idea that, again, that they're going to be met with acceptance, whatever it is that they're putting forth. And there's something about that that has this effect of undoing shame and starting to help people to 
be vulnerable, and take risks because they know they're not going to be criticized and not be humiliated um, or rejected for it. Diana, you know, in doing some research about AEDP, I came across this motto, if you will, that seems Mm -hmm. to be part of how you present the work. And, And here's what it is. Stay with it and stay with me in yeah. terms of helping a client work through a difficult, painful situation. And as we're talking about the relationship of the AEDP therapist, I wanted to talk about this motto a little bit because, first of all, I loved it. I thought it was very beautiful. Stay with it and yeah. stay with me. So yeah. explain both parts of it, the staying with it, and then particularly right. I'm very interested in the staying with me and how you help people do that. Thank you. Um, I think the stay with it, stay with it, is really the the motto or a saying of so many experiential therapies that basically urge the person to stay with this experience, and that through staying with it and being open to what happens as it changes or as it unfolds. There's something about the process that's important and will help. So it's stay with it. That's, you know, people who do Gestalt say stay with it and people who do EMDR and people who do somatic experiencing and really countless, these are just some, that I've just named off the top of my head, but stay with it is really the mantra or the motto of experiential therapies, and as such, it is ADPs as well. The piece that I think is specific to ADP is stay with me. That basically says that as you're going, you know, into this potentially healing, but nevertheless, potentially also painful or difficult or scary or risk-taking, vulnerable-making, what will you uh, What experience? You're not alone. Stay with it, but really stay with me. Keep me right with you. We're in it together. I'm by your side. I'm accompanying you. I am witnessing it. I'm willing to help. So stay with me really says, don't lose the awareness as you're keeping awareness on your process. Don't lose the awareness that we're in this together, that you're not in this alone. I think part of the reason I was so moved by this motto is that mm-hmm. through my own spiritual work, somatic meditation, I, mm-hmm. I was trained a lot in staying with it. And I think yes. a lot of people who do deep spiritual practice on their own come to a place where you have to learn if you're going to be in a yoga posture for you know a long extended period of time you're going to learn how to stay with physical sensations that are uncomfortable yeah that kind of thing but then the second part stay with me that's the part personally that has been so difficult and terrifying for me in my Mm -hmm. life and you know i'm curious to know how when somebody's like, you know, I just can't really do that, or I can do that for 10 seconds, but I don't think I can do it for very long. 
I can stay with it, but I can't stay with you. That's too threatening. How does the AEDP therapist work with that person so that they can do both? They can really stay with the therapist. Right. Um, so that if, in fact, so there are two things. One is prior to answering sort of what you raised, I will answer the other, which is that, as you said, and I so appreciated your sharing something about your own experience, that very often those journeys which we seek are also terrifying and that there's something about potentially about accompaniment that sometimes or in some people actually lessens the terror, terror, lessens the terror, and that there's something about it that just allows being able to really tolerate what comes in a somewhat better way. I know I'm not alone. Now, you're raising a very interesting alternative to that, which is in a way the opposite. Somebody who, you know, for whom stay, you know, they may be able to stay with it, whatever the experience is, but um, that's intrapsychic, that's um, internal to themselves. But there's something about stay with me, the relational aspect, that's absolutely terrifying. And if they were to say that, I can stay with it, but I can't stay with you, then I, again, I would just validate that, that that's so important tell me what's important about not staying with me or tell me what's scary or off-putting. I so appreciate your being able to say that. And then it's about opening into what's terrifying. You know, for some people have who have been so alone, there's something so profoundly moving or reassuring about having contact. For other people who have been relationally traumatized, They've become very, very used to their own autonomy and self-reliance, and but are quite terrified of contact because it's associated with whatever trauma they've suffered. So then, if the response to stay with me is, but I don't want to, or I can't, I think my response would be to deeply just validate and welcome that and see to what degree can we explore together what is it about stay with me that makes it off limits or undesirable or too scary or too terrifying. Mm-hmm. Now you talked about this idea of our aloneness and one of the other aspects in my research about AEDP that really moved me was the idea that a emphasis in the approach is to help people, and you use this phrase, undo aloneness. Yes. And I'd love to know how you came to that as an important goal, if you will, of AEDP right. psychotherapy. Um, I think in really in a couple of ways, but one of the things that... Um, seems so fascinating is that thinking something to oneself and 
saying the very same thing to another person who's there, open, receptive, and listening, are two completely different experiences. Um, The words may be identical, the idea may be identical, the thought may be identical, but that the experience is so different and there's a quality that's so often, you know, there's a richness and a meaningfulness and a transformative quality almost that happens in connection. So that's almost the flip side of the coin to what you've asked me. But I think it became so clear in listening to people's stories of what are the circumstances that are traumatizing to them and what are the most, what are the features or conditions, you know, that that um, cause suffering and that so much of it had to do with the sense of unwanted aloneness, not aloneness in the sense of the solitude that one seeks in some um, proactive way, but a kind of aloneness and isolation um, that was unwilled and was unwanted, and that this was such a profound, profound experience that one hears in stories over and over and over and over. And so that the sense of undoing aloneness really came out of one of the most traumatizing aspects or what makes, you know, certain situations, traumatic situations, in part, It's like the horrendousness of the experience, whatever it is. But there's also something about going through such a disturbing experience without a sense of support or with sense of connection. So, for instance, one of the things that we know is that in combat, you know, soldiers who have a close buddy um, have lower rates of developing PTSD. Now, both buddies are exposed to the same risk and horrifying conditions and life and death combat situation, but there's something about having a buddy that is a protective factor against the development of PTSD. And conversely, feeling alone in those kinds of terrifying situations sort of like heightens the risk of developing or feeling traumatized. Your presentation, Diana, as part of Sounds True's Psychotherapy 2.0 online training summit is on how to be a transformational therapist. And really, you could say that's what we're talking about when we talk about undoing aloneness and looking for transformance in a client. And I'm curious to know, as we're we're talking about this idea of staying with it and staying with me, staying with the transformational Mm -hmm. therapist, what do you think is the role, if you will, of the transformational therapist in society as a whole? Mm 
And I say that because, you know, at Sounds True, we've spent three decades really putting forward so many different spiritual teachings. And I think part of my draw to Sounds True hosting the Psychotherapy 2.0 training summit is that Mm -hmm. there's some part of our healing as people that seems like it has to happen right. in relationship. And I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts right. are about that. I mean, that's such a profound question that I really appreciate, and I appreciate that large perspective. Um, you know, in a way, I think that my own um, personal tradition trajectory has been towards deepening and a way in a way sort of like in um heightening the magnification powers of the microscope if you will and lo- looking at smaller and smaller and smaller sort of moments of behavior so you're asking me in a way about you know the opposite to go in the opposite direction, which is to go from the specifics of the moment-to-moment to something larger and outside of therapy. You know, and that I think um, this quality of whether it be listening or relatedness or connection, um, I think does have so much to contribute to the world or to the the relationship outside of therapy um, that so much, this is not to be in any way simplistic and ignore so many other aspects, but so much of war or ethnic conflicts or what have you is so based on um, aggressive reactions in the face of fear or in the face of um, vulnerability or sense of loss and that the moment that we're able to connect as human beings with one another and be able to listen and empathize, there's something so whether the unit is therapist-patient or the couple or the family or different ethnic groups. There's something about the process of deepening and listening, you know, that the qualities of being human come forth. There was something that happened. I don't know the story in super great detail, but I believe it took place in the 90s in the context of the Arab-Israeli crisis. And there was a Norwegian person whose name I'm not remembering. This was an article in The New Yorker that detailed a process, whereas by this peacemaker or person who had hoped to play this role, really um, um, set about in a Palestinian-Israeli negotiation by inviting both sides to somebody's home in a beautiful place in nature somewhere in Norway where the first day the rule was that one couldn't discuss politics. The negotiations only started in the second day. And people ate together and walked together 
and learned about each other as um, wives and sisters and grandparents and daughters of and so on and so forth. So that there was something and that what they ended up achieving at the negotiation table by which they engaged in in the second and third day, and pardon me if I'm not getting the details right, this was an article 20 years ago that made a huge impression, or 15 years ago that made a huge impression on me. But in a way that captures sort of what I'm trying to say, that there was just something about the two sides not meeting as opposing factions, but really first the common ground of being humans and parents and children and spouses and friends and relating to one another that way and eating and walking and, you know, being in a foreign country and taking something in that created a degree of connection and human care, like I care that you're here and your grandson is in the hospital in your respective country, that when it then came to the complex negotiations of it, it, something different was able to happen, and they were successful in negotiating the particular set of issues. So that, to me, is a very powerful metaphor of accompaniment and undoing aloneness and the capacity to be accepting and inviting until this kind of sense of connection or resonance or empathy really is in the process. And then uh, the activity is profoundly changed. Mm-hmm. Now I want to just briefly touch on the third distinctive feature of AEDP, which you mentioned which you described as meta-processing, particularly around transformational experience. And so if you could briefly unpack a little bit what you mean by that. Uh, I'd, be, I'd be honored to. Um, so I want just to give you an example. Um, um, let's say that, you know, we're working in therapy with, anxiety or fear and somebody who's feeling sort of afraid and somewhat withdrawn. And through a therapeutic process, we're able to deal with the fear or whatever emotion is underneath. And then they get to a place or you do a piece of trauma processing. And then you come out the other side where the individual is feeling more assertive or more confident or able to stand up tall. Now, that in and of itself is a lovely therapeutic result. However, for us, it's a lovely result for one phase of the process, but it's an entry point for the next phase of the process where we're going to process together what's therapeutic about therapy, so to speak. That's the meta-therapeutic processing. What's the experience, what's it like to have a therapeutic experience? So in my example here, what is it like to have experienced this transformation from withdrawal and isolation to a place of confidence in your own capacities? that becomes sort of the entry point. Or what is it like for the two of us to have done this work together, you know, as you stayed with it and stayed with me? What's that like? 
And by actually focusing now on the positive experience of change, on the positive experience of transformation, a whole series of, there's a cascade of new emotions, transformational emotions, which when worked with somatically, What's that like in your body? What's your experience of it? As well as reflectively, so it's a right brain, left brain kind of integrative process, leads to more and more and more of these transformational affects. Um, And bringing yet a second transformational process um, to bear into the work. I don't know if I've described it clearly enough. I think so. I, th- I think I understand what you're saying, that once I, I identify this experience of newfound strength or newfound confidence or I'm sitting up tall or whatever, then it's not just happening, but I reflect on it happening. And that I'm reflecting right. on it further anchors it in my reference bank, if you will, of a newly embedded capacity that I have. Exactly. You expressed it so much more cogently than I just No, did. that's okay. You explained it well <laughs> right. enough for me to understand it. Okay, right. Diana, I just have, I have two final questions for you. So one thing I'm curious about is here you've been working within this framework of AEDP that you've developed mm-hmm. now for, what, 20 years? Uh, yes. Yes, I think just about. And I'm curious to know, are there any major questions that you're asking yourself about this approach to therapy? Hmm. Uh, Can you just do one more round of elaboration? Yeah. Are you like, hmm, this is the question I'm wrestling with about how AEDP Mm -hmm. approaches therapy. This question or that question, this is what I wrestle with. Right. Um, I mean, there are two, but I think I will focus on the second because I think it's more in the spirit of what you're asking. I think that one is, it's ever unfolding and it's how to make it better and deeper or more, more comprehensive. So that's one aspect of it. But I think the the other aspect of it is what happens in those situations, you know, when leaning into the transformance or into the connection or into the resilience, all these things that we've been talking about, which I think is, in fact, profoundly transformational for many, many people, but not for everybody. Or are there corners of the human psyche, corners of darkness or corners of recalcitrant that don't, that are not accessible to being pursued or being explored or being revealed in this way. So I think it has something to do with uh, from this very positively healing-oriented place, really revealing some of the aspects of negative experience that are just not quite touched um, by the transformational work 
um, without being addressed in their own terms, if you will. Mm-hmm. You know, the sort of yeah. the, the you know I think that the darker the motivation towards some, some of the darker motivations as motivations and not just as responses to hurt. That's a, a very honest question, and I appreciate it. You know, it's interesting in our conversation that we've been having here, you're in Manhattan, and I think yes. we've heard nothing less than four ambulances right. in the course of this hour. And I was just thinking right. about that because of just all the violence in our time. And yeah. as you talk about the potential limitations of any therapeutic approach. Mm-hmm sort of underscores that for me. Right. Right. My window is open, so there's something about the sounds of the city sort of being the objective to relative for that. Um, and, yeah. Okay, Diana, one final question for you, and this is a personal one, which is this program is called Insights at the Edge. And yeah. one of the things I'm always curious about is to know what someone's sort of personal edge is, what they're working on in their own life, in their personal life, as part of their growth and development. And I'm curious if you'd be willing to share that with our listeners and with me. Um, I would love to sort of to respond in the same spirit in which you're asking the question. Um, and I think for me... Um, I really do think the edge has something to do with um, approaching, I think, my personal life with the same kind of mindfulness and um, orientation um, <laughs> as the sirens go again. <laughs> um with the same mindfulness and the same orientation that I have described to you, I think that's the challenge of, uh, for me, of meeting my significant others, my in my closest relationships, the most complex ones, in a way, um, just with the same generosity and the same challenge towards acceptance and transcending some of the temptation of being smaller rather than bigger, but that's an that's an edge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Diana Fosha, you've been so straightforward and honest with me, and I really appreciate it. And I really appreciate learning more about AEDP. Thank you so much. And Tammy, I, in turn, am so grateful. I feel that your research into ADP and my work has gotten to its essence, I think, in a way that made me feel seen, which I think allowed me to be able to be open and speak so openly. I felt very understood and um, felt my work honored in how you received it. So I wanted to thank you for that very much. Thank you. I've been speaking with Diana Fosha. She's one of the featured presenters in Sounds True's upcoming online training summit, Psychotherapy 2.0.
She'll be giving a presentation as part of that training summit on how to be a transformational therapist. The summit takes place online September 7th through the 13th with two free broadcasts each day. Presenters in the series include Bessel Vanderkoek, Richard Schwartz, Stephen Hayes, Jack Cornfield, and the entire series is hosted by Diane Poole Heller, who is a leading trainer of psychotherapists in the fields of attachment and trauma work. I'm uh, so pleased that Sounds True is putting on Psychotherapy 2.0, September 7th to the 13th. SoundsTrue.com is your place for more information. And thank you, everyone. Thank you for listening. SoundsTrue.com, many voices, one journey.